0: real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Some hard truth. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and guns. guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to the quiet professional. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romus with you. Today we're going to be talking about some national security topics, politics, and the culture of security institutions. For that, I have Daniel Stanton on the program. Dan is a former executive manager with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, He dedicated over 30 years to both national and international security issues. He worked in fields of counterterrorism and espionage and counterproliferation is now the director of the National Security Program at the University of Ottawa Professional Development Institute and a regular contributor to media as an expert on these same topics. So welcome, Dan.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Nathan.
0: Yeah, no, we were just, uh, we kind of got fired up here and we're saying, um, I think we originally scheduled this maybe like two months ago where we were talking about scheduling this and so much has changed in the world. Uh, Things are moving at a fast pace right now, so I'm glad to get you in because I look at a lot of your stuff on LinkedIn, and you put out some really good content, and, and I like looking at your critiques and criticisms of oh, nice. some of the articles out there. So I really appreciate uh, your point of view on things. But uh, I'd like to, before we get into the heavier topics, talk about you. So if you could kind of give the audience an idea of uh, where you come from and how you got into this whole world, this crazy world of things.
1: Sure. I mean, it, it's just funny. I think like everybody, how you end up somewhere. I you know, grew up in Ottawa, went away to university, ended up in Toronto, working retail. But I had applied to the security service of the RCMP um, shortly after I finished university, and I completely forgot about it. And then three years later, um, I got a call, and, and they were hiring investigators for a new organization. So long and the short of it, I ended up waking up one morning at Camp Borden with 32 other uh, just as bewildered strangers from across the country training, training to be investigators. In they wanted to fill vacancies in the regions for this new organization. And then I ended up in Toronto region, uh, did my first seven years there working. Um, what We called Soviet uh, anti-Soviet operations. It was the KGB desk. And I was very fortunate because I was the first non-Mounty in this particular section in counterintelligence. And while it was a new organization, it was only a year and a half old, they had 40 years of experience, not individually, but collectively, the tradecraft, the methodology working against these very sophisticated targets. Because the threat environment hadn't changed in, in decades. And so I kind of, bit of a quiet guy. I kind of listened a lot and uh, <laughs> took, did all the jobs, did the walk-ins they called them. They were usually people with tinfoil hats, <laughs> and uh, and learned and learned. And so most of what I learned as an investigator, in intelligence work, I got from those ex-members of the RCMP who who chose to stay in this new organization, and because so the work didn't really change. The only thing that changed is they didn't have a badge and they. They were no longer in the force, mm-hmm. but their data work and their expertise and their commitment and everything hadn't hadn't really changed. So I was quite fortunate, I think, in where I landed, and uh, very quickly ended up, you know, recruiting sources and handling sources and double agents, and which beat the hell out of selling shoes in Toronto. <laughs>
0: <laughs> quite a different, yeah, quite a different job. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And it, and it was, and it was, it was great. You know, um, like I say, the, the motivation was high. We had a, a, an attitude. I think my classmates, we all shared where, you know, you sign up for the whole movie, you know, you are going to commit your life to this, you know, much as in other vocations as well. And, uh, for Canada security. So, uh, it was all, it's all win-win. Yeah. Well,
0: what uh, kind of drove you into this in the first place? Like, was there a certain thing that piqued your interest, or someone that pushed you in this direction?
1: Yeah, nobody pushed me in it. I, I was always interested in. I mean, I studied history, and I was always interested in international relations and things going on. And that's really since ninety percent of the threats are external to Canada. If you have a curiosity of what's going on in the world, then it it's it's kind of easy. So. Um, I think it's just maybe I'd say intellectually I had those interests, and I had read a lot about espionage and British experiences and things like that, and um, and I think I was always kind of more oriented towards a big organization. Okay. As opposed to you know doing my own thing, and so I I kind of like that. I like being part of that and training and that camaraderie that came with. Yeah. Working for the same cause, you know, I, you, you understand what I mean. And, um, and so then I just that my loyalty automatically just went to that organization and, and Canadian government. And, and it, it was a good, it was a good ride. Yeah. Worked overseas a lot, uh, worked three different regions in Canada, did my tours at headquarters. Um, it's a very centralized organization. So you do have to come into Ottawa. <laughs> you do have to <laughs> do your time in Ottawa. Uh, and um, met a, met a lot of people. People I trained with and friends for life. Mm-hmm. People from that first six months at Camp Borden, you just get very tight, and uh, so you you just. I still we still get together now and then. Some of us.
0: Well, and even like you're saying a bit about on the commitment piece, and then you talk about the camaraderie. Uh, that's something that I find very important with this job, especially mm-hmm. being in law enforcement in general. I imagine security kind of runs along the same lines um and i know uh one of the things we were talking about before was uh uh, human sources so you mentioned a lot of the work you've done is in that world Um, if you want to talk about commitment i think people don't realize when you're handling sources like if you really want to be good at it i mean that is a huge time commitment when you got people calling you at all hours of the day with literally every problem under the sun (laughs) because you can be their best friend and and you're like a a shoulder to cry on all the way to national security issues and you know you're trying to rally the troops and and prevent something major or uh, big from happening so uh, did you find that uh, in the source world was it a huge time commitment for you in in the realm that you were kind of operating in yeah like you have people calling you all the time?
1: Yeah, not, not supposed to call me all the time, but I really like what you said about shoulder to cry on because mm. my mantra has always been a good source handler is a therapist. Yeah. You really are. <laughs> because you, you, you have to invest the time and you have to listen. And the main reason is for security reasons. You have to know your source. You have to know their threshold for stress. You have to know what's going on in their Life, sometimes personal life can actually be more significant than you know, informing on the bad guys. Yeah. And so you you do have to have time. And I can remember, I can remember quite junior in my my career. I remember one guy, he ended up being a really good source. I saw him like eight times before he actually came across and told me anything. Because mm-hmm. they're they're kind of assessing you and putting you putting you off and oh, I can't meet. I'm busy and go away. You get used to that a lot because they're scared. They don't want to talk to you. But I'm. I was persistent, and I would go back out and see him, and try to see him, and and then finally, at one point, he just told me something about the target of an investigation. I was like, "Wow!" So I used to years later, when I was talking to younger intelligence officers, I would say, you know, they're assessing you, and you don't just talk to somebody two or three times when they're a source. Um, you you have to you have to convey. Uh, a certain confidence on their part that you're for real. Yeah. And like you say, calls all the night and, um, and, and that you're there for them. But at the same time, you're professional. They may see you as their best friend and knowing all about their secret life, but you can't ever let your guard down in the sense that as much as you like the person and a couple people, I think the most respect admiration I've ever had for people but at the same time, you're always listening to what they're saying and you're you're thinking you know any any chance that maybe they're getting something that's false or maybe they've turned and they're working for the bad guys. So you're always kind of yeah, I'm not saying you're not trusting them, but you always have to be professional, whereas you create the illusion that you're best friends because that's important. you are very important to them, but you still got to be. I guess a little bold and analytical in terms of things can happen in a person's life. And, yeah. And
0: that, I think you always have that in the back of your mind. Um, it's, it's just the roles, right? And you, at the end of the day are still law enforcement or, or working in the security uh, area. So if you get something that you can use that's safe and nobody's going to die from it and whatever other checks you have to do, you're looking to use that information. Um, but yeah, you definitely have to, to to be a certain type of person I think to handle informants um, and, and just that level of commitment there is is pretty big I think people it, it's it's hard to convey a lot of this because a lot of this world is so secretive yeah. and you can't tell any of the information so like how do we get this across to people um, and you're talking about teaching some of the the some of this to the younger generation. You said that you had recently taught one of the uh, police service about source handling. Can you just talk a bit about that course?
1: Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I do some consulting on it and I did, I did deal with one and and I'm glad you asked because I, I think it's much harder for law enforcement in terms of, recruiting informants and managing informants than it is for an intelligence service and I, I have exposure to all sorts of police agencies and obviously the RCMP but you know law enforcement exists as you well know to prosecute people mm-hmm. and and the end game ideally is you're going to be in court so you're looking for someone who's going to give you evidence and who is is going to be hundred percent firm they're going to show up in court and and I guess be a good police agent. And that's hard. That's harder than in, na- in a lot of national security work. And I probably have colleagues who are saying, oh no, Dan, it's really hard to get. Yes, it's, it's, sometimes it's really hard to get a source, with the right motivation and access national security work. But in national security work, you're less likely to have a source who may have a, a criminal record, uh, who may still be involved in crimes, who may have substance abuse issues, maybe addictions. And at the same time, you're anticipating how the defense is going to be dealing with them as a witness and all that. And, and so that's why I have a lot of respect for what law enforcement has to deal with in terms of, in, you know, they call it informant um, handling and management um, be, because you probably have people, you would know this more than I do. You probably have people that can be more difficult to manage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've had people like in Nashville, I've had sources that are really hard to manage, are really manipulative and they're really good at lying to the bad guys, but you're less likely to have people that are going to have all this other stuff going on in their life that is like, oh, you know, just could complicate.
0: I think the big difference too would be the difference between the, the using stuff for evidence or intelligence. So maybe more on the intelligence side, yeah. you're not you're not necessarily going to compel that person to court. They remain a true informant, not an agent. Yeah. they don't switch to that side of things. Whereas for uh, police, a lot of what we want to do is gather evidence, something we have to present in court. So you're trying to keep yeah. that person as an informant in some cases where you don't want to reveal their identity. Um, they're just a number. And you know, only the, the, the handler ends up in court yeah. basically to say nothing, but uh, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's definitely that element. I think a lot of the, you know, police come across most of their informants through crime, right? Like you, you show up to a sure. call and yeah, you end up talking to somebody and you start building that relationship, especially if you see repeat customers, yeah. you're constantly in at this person's door, like develop a relationship with them, professional one, and then you kind of go from there, yeah. you know, hey, can I get some information that helps us stop whatever it is we want to stop? So, um, yeah, I, do you enjoy the, the teaching aspect now? I guess that's like a big part of what you're doing after.
1: Yeah, I do. It, it's, um, I like it because, um, like I say, it's the same, I don't want to say same principles, but it's kind of the same psychology. Mm-hmm. whether it's national security or whether it's um we'll, we'll just say law enforcement you know you're 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 um like I talked to you before about the time investment and knowing the source and things like that and you know trying to identify who has access and and you know managing it, managing the relationship um and even 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 work you know you know, what's called UC work or undercover work, you know, which, which has always interested me. Like a lot of people, I've read a lot about, you know, police stories and Donnie Brasco and things like that. And it is still, even though it's a police officer, um, it, it is still linked to the fundamentals of source management, you know, and getting the right access and, um what limits as far as they can do and challenges. And what I like is that idea of a good source operation where, you know, the source creates the illusion among the, with the targets mm. of who we are, right? It could be a biker gang. It could be a terrorist group. It's, it's still the same thing. They're, they're letting them believe what they want to believe so that, he or she can do their job and get the information or, or I guess get the evidence on that. And I I find that, that interesting. And I, and I also use some of that, what we look at, let's say in national security work as recruitability indicators. Let's say you want to recruit somebody like a really high priority target, somebody Mm -hmm. in the intelligence world. The things we look at to make them recruitable are also from the other side of the coin. Vulnerabilities and insider threat. So I, I also, of course, on insider threat. Moles, leakers, which is kind of <laughs> in vogue these days. Yeah. But <laughs> the, the things that, that, that we look to exploit in getting a source against these various targets are also the things that organizations and, and intelligence services and police forces and everything else are looking to protect against which is those same kind of vulnerabilities and things. So it's, it sounds like I'm talking in circles, but it's, it's all got to do with human behavior. And I think the fact that I find human behavior interesting um, and unpredictable um, that um, when we get into things like sources and informants and that, yeah, I, I actually really enjoy the, the discussion. And, and when people have questions or they'll say, you know, how do you know they're telling the truth or vetting and stuff. And, and it's just, you know, it's all common sense stuff. It's stuff that organizations have been doing for years. And and we find that we all have the same questions. Yeah, You know, we all have the same doubts um, as to whether someone's being true, because that's ultimately the end of it. What we're doing is we're trying to get the truth, trying to get, solid useful information and and reliable information and there's these processes we we just have to go through yeah <laughs> to make sure we're not getting it i i also teach a course that's got fabrications part of a, the afternoon is on on um on fabricators because they've off often are the bane of intelligence work uh you get people that make up these narratives and uh and it's the same thing. It's trying to elicit the truth.
0: What are they fabricating for? Like, what's their intention?
1: You know, it's a whole bunch of reasons. Usually it could be money, it could be attention. Sometimes it's attention. Sometimes there's one now, it's it's common information. I, not common information, it's public information. A plot to kill Obama, I think, at the inauguration. And I remember, I was I was in uh, in Vancouver at the time. And it was, we later learned someone walked into an embassy in Africa, an American embassy, and had this story of these individuals in North America, including Canada, of Somali background were going to kill Obama. Huh. And he wanted money. And, and um, I think it was a, an FBI or somebody in the FBI later came in and said, Hey, I've heard this story before, blah, 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 blah. It's a fabricator. But they usually have a short period of time for you to make a decision yeah and they want something and there's sort of, so there's certain little flags you can tell mm-hmm. and so but again it's the same thing it's it's like we can get all the toys and polygraph machines and everything we want but um, it, it's a matter of the human i guess you could say the human element where you you just after a while you can discern there's something funny here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, this just is, isn't. It's too good to be true. And if it's too good to be true, chances are he's making it up, or somebody is making it up and telling him.
0: We could have all the fancy technology and you know uh, equations and the physics of everything, and as soon as you throw a human in there, it all goes to hell. And yeah. <laughs> you never know which way it's going to go because people just change on a dime sometimes. And yeah, it's. It's a fun world, but boys, is stressful sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I and, I, and I, you know, I have to test my own, bo- challenge my own bias sometimes. I used to always be skeptical. And I remember one time had a source, and it was always, this was real, but it was a part I thought he was spinning. Oh, yeah. And I was positive he was making it up, and it just didn't make sense. And then um, I found out later I was wrong. <laughs> oh, really? You know? Okay. Yeah. You just, sometimes you, you can overthink things and... And, uh, not to say I'm never wrong and occasionally wrong, but, you know, you, you can be a little too skeptical sometimes. And, uh, uh you know, maybe sometimes what's presented to you is true. Um, mm. you know, I bring my own biases to it, uh, maybe having dealt with people
0: that that lie. Yeah. It could could put up like a few walls. Maybe you become a little more skeptical of what people say. Like it's just based on all your prior experience. Right. And you, especially if you get burned a few times then you really start kind of getting on the defensive. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just through experience. So um, on a lot of these topics, though, and like you're saying uh, a lot of this stuff kind of in vogue (laughs) nowadays Maybe we'll kind of move to like a bigger picture issue. So just talking about national security, um, I kind of wanted to get your opinion to start on just where Canada kind of lies in the whole scheme of things right now. Yeah. Um, see lots of articles about reputation. So yeah. when it comes to Canada and their reputation among the five eyes, where do you see us kind of um, situated right now? And Do people still trust us?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I know I, I worked with, there's, there's 12 partners. I think I worked with nine or 10 of them with the Five Eyes. I mean, closely. This is the SIGINT as well as the human agencies that, that we conventionally regard as the Five Eyes. And the relationship was always good. You know, Canada is seen as, in many ways, what we call a niche provider. We don't have, you know, mobile intelligence collection. We're and ceases and some other partners but in that those areas that we in my view we always fought above our punching weight and in in other areas we're more of a receiver like in what we call non-threat foreign intelligence what i'm a little concerned with recently is some of the effects of the leaks okay and uh, so there there have been leaks there have been pre leak Pre-China Gate, I call it the China Foreign Interference China Gate leaks that probably a lot of people didn't notice. And then there's been some recent leaks on the India business. Yes, and while I think the China ones were more domestic, I think the India ones. Um, I I I have I can't doubt that there's some discussion somewhere. Maybe what are the Canadians doing? This is the the latest stuff on India and you know, the killing of Mr. Nijar and, and things like that. And I, I have no problem with the veracity of the information, either the Five Eyes or Canadian intelligence. But I wonder if, if somebody is thinking at some point what goes on and then we have a case, as you know, in Ottawa with the Ortiz case. Well... Yeah, the trial with Cameron Ortiz. Yeah, and that's not a, that's not a pretty, pretty case what has been released in the public. As you know, they've I think for the last two weeks they've they've um, clamped down on on the, the public aspect of the trial. So while we haven't had the you know the Deliles and not the Deliles the uh, Snowden's and and all the leaks mm. you know, let's say the U.S. had, I do think some of the more recent leaks maybe they are injurious to in national security. I can't I can't say it isn't. I know it's probably injurious to CSIS in terms of getting future sources. But I'd say yeah, I think our brand. It's probably been dented a bit. And then let's get outside of the intel agencies, just the whole issue of Canada's contribution to the military and NATO and things like that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've been retired for, I guess, four years now government service, but I can't help, but think that that doesn't put Canada a couple notches lower than where it used to be in terms of, you know, their own weight, I guess.
0: But kind of the totality of it all, yeah, like you, you're saying good. just everything, mm-hmm. yeah, I could kind of see that, like I see some of the the news that you know we might not be uh, included in some discussions when it comes to partners from the five eyes when we get left out, but I've also read a lot of things where it says, yeah, like you're saying, we're a net importer of the security information. we don't necessarily have the reach like the u s or the the Brits might have. Uh, when you come to the foreign intelligence. Um, but do you think we, we like when it comes to the leaks, are we doing a disservice to ourselves more? Or is it is it just people getting kind of annoyed uh, or at the lack of attention that's being paid to these things? So when you look at how many things have come out about, we've briefed the PMO's office on, you know, A hundred things. And this goes all the way back to, you could go back to like Sidewinder. Um, This stuff's been ignored for so long. So I kind of wonder like, at what point when people are like, this is an actual national security issue. It's not just I'm doing it to be cool or I'm getting paid some money by somebody, but like people are getting hurt. We have infiltration in elections or whatever it might be, the allegations. At what point do you go, okay, I need to get this out at some point, some way? Yeah. So is it more of detriment to us in the reputation sense as opposed to security side of things?
1: Yeah, I think I think in I think it's more damaging to Canada than the five eyes. I mean, let's look at it this way. And we'll leave Sidewinder aside. I have some some views on that. But mm. but if you look at espionage cases and attempted espionage cases. The only one that was prosecuted was Jeffrey Delisle because he pled guilty and he was sentenced. So he was working for Russian intelligence. Very, very damaging source, according to General Petraeus, when he was director of CIA, was one of the worst in the five eyes up until 2012, I think it was. We had another case, I'd say we But there was a case of a fellow in the Toronto area who offered his services to the Chinese. And after eight years of languishing, where the Crown couldn't, I guess, determine what they wanted to disclose in court, the judge threw it out, acquitted it Mm. as, you know, time, what is it, justice delayed is justice not served. And there's been a few other cases. And now we've got the Orta's case. So, and I said this in one of my media interviews, they just didn't They had enough of me. They only put a few seconds in, but what I said was, (laughs) if we don't see a successful prosecution on violations of the Security Information Act, the SOIA, as they call it, then it's the message is really that it's you can get away with this in Canada. You can get away with attempted espionage. You can get away with espionage. You can do in this case leaking. I know he leaked to a, I think it was a foreign criminal or things like that, and puts a lot of documents home. But I think the message. To Canadians, is you can get away with it. And I think that's where you say you ask the question, where's the damage? Is it the five eyes? I think it's more ourselves because the idea of we may have in ways made it permissible mm-hmm. that people can leak, that that people can make that decision that I'm right, government's not doing what I want them to do, and I can leak. And that's why these cases, I think, I think they have impacted Canada's brand a bit internationally, but I think the worst is the message in Canada is that unless you plead guilty, um, the government can't really prosecute you for, for being a mole or leaking.
0: So is that is that more uh, a problem with we don't have the proper laws on the books or are we just not enforcing the laws that we have? Or maybe even a third is you just don't have the right people or the knowledge of how to kind of go after those type of issues.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think it would take a couple of days to answer that one. But I think in a <laughs> okay. nutshell, we have all these issues coming in at the same time. We have the intelligence to evidence conundrum, which yeah. has been getting better. Justice is dealing with it. I think top Parliament needs to do some tweaking with the legislation. We've got the perception is a lack of will, I think, with the government. Um, And um, maybe it's because in some ways, um, and this may sound contradictory, because Canada hasn't been suffering from the national security threats that a lot of other countries have worse. They've had worse cases, not just terrorism, but espionage, that we sort of have had the luxury and not. Taken these cases as seriously as we have. I'm sure there's lawyers in the Crown and Justice Department who are frustrated. There has to be. But it just, we need somebody to sort of pull it all together and say, okay, let's look at the legislation. I gave testimony twice uh, at the House of Commons on foreign interference. And we do have legislation, the Security of Information Act. You can prosecute foreign mm-hmm. interference. But they hadn't really done that until some charges recently. And I, my understanding from people that are lawyers is these legislations need, a bit, need some tweaking, some amendments that need to be made. But it's not rocket science. It's just a matter of getting government to do that and getting the current government maybe push to have these changes done so you can get a prosecution. Yeah. Because our allies are able to do this. I mean, the Americans just sentenced this guy Jason Schultz. He was a contractor CIA. He dumped all these tools. Internationally, he got something like eighty years. Wow! Um, you know the Germans. I think the, no. The, I think there's a Brit uh, was selling stuff to the Russians. I think he got a pretty good conviction. So we are looking kind of <laughs> a little weak. Yeah. In counter espionage,
0: I think it's, honestly it's 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 through the whole justice system. This is like right down to petty theft. We just like we're tossing. So much in the courts now we see like serious yeah. uh uh egg assaults we see people get stabbed and like it just gets tossed and yeah crown the crown just doesn't have time for it in the day they're they're running yeah. fifty other trials you know it, and they just they can't get to it or something so they we've had stuff tossed out we've had serious files where they find um the smallest reason to throw it out, yeah, and like we'll personally we'll go and have a debate in a crown's office and you'll see, um, it's like, really you're, you're tossing it for that. Like, I think it's more bringing the justice system into disrepute by not going ahead and just saying, Hey, we might've stepped on someone's rights, but we were, you know, right in nine out of 10 of the steps. Like, I think this is a very minor infraction. Yeah. No, just toss it. So it is. Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to the will. We're missing the people who really have that kind of the gusto, the drive to just be like, I'm going to go ahead with this.
1: Yeah,
0: I I agree with you totally.
1: And I mean, to be fair too, not to be just totally depressing, (laughs) um, you know, there are there are things that go on in national security world that don't involve prosecutions. I mean, there's there's like the day to day stuff, just as I'm sure with law enforcement, you know, you've got a police officer on patrol. Uh, he's not always arresting someone or he or she isn't arresting someone. So, you know, CSIS has this disruptive activities mandate and there's a lot that goes on, especially in counterintelligence where you don't end up with someone uh, necessarily prosecuted because CSIS doesn't think that way. They are not hardwired to them, and they don't need to. That's what you got law enforcement for. You also look at it positively. In my opinion, I worked 12 years counterterrorism. I, I managed the national program at one point when it was really bad. Um, Islamic extremism influenced Al-Qaeda, ISIS influenced terrorism. It does not seem to be a problem in Canada. I'm, I'm I'm quite sure unless it's all being disrupted, it's nothing like it was five or six years ago. Yeah. Nothing like when Zarello was killed and the other, um, I forget his name fellow on in, uh, in the reserve, I think in the reserve side back. in Canada. Yeah. And now we've got right-wing extremism. I've seen the the RCMP has laid some charges on a couple of guys recently on the far right. So in terms of terrorism, it really is manageable um, in a way. And the threat levels have diminished to the point that when we talk about national security, we have to sort of re-look at it. We look at foreign interference, and I've been going around talking about this, it is a problem it is it is a serious problem not just China India Iran Russia to a certain degree and um, that's where I think our lack of uh, leadership and um, action let's say or policy incomes are costing us so it's kind of like if we look back in the last five or six years you know or ten years ago ten years ago would be accurate we were seized with Terrorism issues while still working counterintelligence, you know, Russia, China, everything else, and some other stuff. And now that's stuff is diminished. But we realize now we're, I'd say, almost overwhelmed with these state actors. Okay. These malignant blind state actors with foreign interference in Canada. And that's where, again, I've talked a lot about this. We have to sort of have a rethink in terms of national security instead of just the hard espionage cases, terrorism cases, we now have to look at the more subtle, but just as damaging foreign interference activities. And I think that's been neglected. Not the only one I think you said that. And uh, the country's trying to do a catch up on it. So it's sort of like, not bad national security in Canada, but if we look at it from foreign interference, Maybe we don't know everything.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. And you know what? I think on some things, we're gonna, we'll obviously be better on some things than others. There's always room for improvement. Do you think that we have the right organizations? So between the RCMP, CSIS, CSE, do we need more organizations looking at certain things? Do we need to kind of narrow some mandates down of some people and have some other no. organizations created? or
1: no, the, pro- the problem isn't the organizations that are collecting it. The problem is what we refer to as, as the machinery of government, the policy outcome side. Mm. So you've got CSIS doing its job. You've got the RCB doing its job. You've got CSE doing their job. They, they work this file as well. And, and then as we know on China, the reporting goes into government and either people don't read it mm. or people read it and don't see it as actionable. So whether this is electoral interference, harassment of MPs, we've seen this. We've seen this in committee testimony. That side of the intelligence world, the, the policy outcome world, machinery government world, in my opinion, is, has been somewhat dysfunctional in that they don't do it. It's not a question that does CSIS need more resources or do they need their mandate to change. Their mandate changed significantly in 2016 with disruptive powers. They've got all sorts of resources. And I think the RCMP as well. The problem is when you look at the prosecution side of foreign interference, um, I think it was the new commissioner or the interim commissioner said at the time, well, we need to fix the intel evidence thing. Okay. The RCMP to do it. And I respectfully beg to differ. If you have the legislation The RCMP can collect the evidence on foreign interference. You know, they—that's their—that's their their métier. That's what they do. They—they collect the evidence on it. But I think it's a matter of, I can refocusing a bit how the agencies work, and having the policymakers take some leadership on this. Mm, Yeah. Instead of now, because the government is basically under siege with these allegations on China. They're just in this kind of defensive mode. Here's an inquiry, go away. And um, that's why with the hearings, the way the momentum was going, I was thinking, great, we're going to have somebody take take this on. And one of the former national security advisors, the prime minister, in his testimony, he actually said that he had gotten together these deputy ministers in a committee to try to, I, I say, handle the reporting, handle this beast but it's on the policy outcome end that there needs to be some adjustments and some leadership um, because the, the, the ones collecting the intelligence they're, they're doing a fine job. Yeah. Uh, it's just you have to read the reports.
0: I'd almost try and find the bottleneck where all these reports go to die and then see what's that person doing. Right. Cause it's like, maybe that person's one of the foreign influence people (laughs) and they just kill all the stuff before it gets read or anyone cares about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't give them that credit, but (laughs) it's frustrating because you know how much work goes into this. You know there's a lot of money. Yeah. know there's a lot of personal human risk. And then the reporting goes in and to see uh, people say, well, we didn't read it or their staff didn't brief them up or a minister wasn't able to get into his emails or CSIS didn't tell him or stuff like that. And it's just like, oh, you shoot me, please. And I don't mean that in a personal way. I know people are busy and I know public servants are busy. It's just, you have so much. This side of the house that have to comply with policies that are reviewed by review bodies that are accountable. When I was a manager in ops, I was personally accountable in some ways terms of liability and yet this other side of the house we'll call it the machinery of government they're only accountable to their minister and then the ministers are saying well i didn't get the reports yeah and uh that's really really if i had one wish list from this inquiry that's the side that needs to be fixed it's not give su- ceases more surveillance cars or give the mounties more money that'd be nice but it's, it's to act on the intelligence. And we have a culture in this country, long before either of us were born, that just does not know that they can use intelligence. Yeah. In a policy. For whatever department they're in.
0: We see that on, even in policing, where we're sitting on like hordes of information and intelligence, but nobody does anything with it. Yeah, And a, a part of that is people either don't know how to incorporate it and like put it into action. A lot of people are actually scared to cuz they think they're just going to get somebody killed or something like, right. you know, really bad will happen and then it's it's on them. So those are kind of the two of the biggest things that I've seen when when you have the intel and and people don't want to use it. There's also parts ego and different things where people just hoard it to be the, you know, the single source of everything and everybody yeah. has to come to me, but That's more of on the policing side that I've seen that. Um, Do you think when, like you, so you went and testified twice in front of the House of Commons.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you think those, um, doing those kind of things really helps get through to some of the politicians? Is that where maybe, maybe we need more of that? Because if reports, you put all the time and effort into reports and it's not going where it's supposed to or it's not getting read, you know, just kind of, skipping all the middle people and go straight to them face to face and say, this is what's going on in your backyard. Yeah. Do you find that's more effective?
1: I I think, I think it does. I mean, I've, I've had, you know, I've had some MPs speak to me afterwards and they have thanked me. And it's not just for partisan reasons. Um, and, uh, uh, of, of various parties. And I, I think it's because I was, I was obviously in a sympathetic position, you know, in terms of Michael Chong, the MP, yeah, uh, from that uh, Richmond Hill that that he should have been told. I actually said that in my testimony. Regardless of policymakers, he <laughs> should have told him. So I think I think it's gone over. I think people that testify and say, "Look," because I have to stick to the Security of Information Act. I can't breach that but I'm in a, in a sort of a generic way, I'm saying, look, this is not working. Here's why. Um, and I think, I think they've appreciated that. And I think with all the testimony, certainly not mine, but all the testimony they had last earlier this year led to, in some ways, this inquiry, because through the media, because the media has been reporting on, Media has kind of got the government to do things. It got the government to kick out a Chinese diplomat that secret reports wouldn't do. And so they picked that up. I find it's, it, it's the
0: media starts saying something and then the politicians react. And I, it, it gives the feeling that it's only for right. votes, though. Like, it doesn't come across as sincere once you get to that point. It's like you have your, your security and intelligence services Like the experts in this telling you something, you think that would be the most important people listen to, but it's not until it gets to the media where somebody then is turning it into a pandemic, epidemic of whatever is going on. So that comes across as, yeah, not not really sincere. And then that kind of goes back to the earlier point where I'm saying, you know, you get people who are like pushing things for years and years and years saying, hey, this is happening. Okay. Nobody's doing anything with this, and we're going to have a a major problem. Here you go. Now you get start getting leaks. So I think there. Yeah, I think it comes down to a lot of the leadership, and we need some better leadership where they're actually listening to these these things, and even having the right people in between who know how to act on certain things or what information to pass along. I think that's missing.
1: It it is, and I think I. I think with, like, for example, the China business, probably over the summer, the government realized they were looking weak in terms of national security with all these allegations. The three main MPs were being harassed, all this stuff. And then you get the threat of a leak regarding India. So what does the prime minister do? Does he sit on it and Canadians learn from the media? No. Because they realize, I think at the end of the day, it is votes, but it's also if you're not going to put the safety and security of Canadians first, you're finished in an election. Mm-hmm. I mean you talk about carbon yes. tax, you could talk about inflation, you could talk about hitting the grocery heads in for a meeting. If you are seen to not put the safety and security of Canadians, whether it's a hostile intelligence service collecting information, or whether it's a state murdering somebody um you're toast and i think the government realized on china the perception may not be the real yeah in the public is that they've sort of dropped the ball on chinese foreign interference for years and so that's why in the india case and i don't think they necessarily handled it right they realized if we're seen to be the last one on the block to know about this because it came out in the Globe and Mail, we're finished. So then, that's where the Prime Minister makes the yeah. declaration in the House and all sorts of ramifications there. But I think,
0: that especially in our own backyard, right?
1: Especially in our own backyard, and and exactly, and 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 it's a yeah. Canadian. And so I think the realization is people say, "Okay, elections, national security doesn't matter," and, and there's a grain of truth to that. Canadians care about you know gas for their car and everything else, and, and kids in and schools. And, um, but I think if if it increasingly becomes the view of the public that the government has been kind of weak on the national security file, that, that can harm them at the polls. And so that's why I'm still a bit bewildered. Yes. We don't have a registry, a uh, foreign agent registry. I'm still bewildered the way they handled the inquiry, fobbing it off to the opposition, the silence on it. Uh, and I guess it's just maybe they're just under siege politically and with the polls and, uh, and then Canadians are wondering yeah. what gives. <laughs> well,
0: and you know what, maybe that kind of leads into one of the things I going to talk about is how do you, how do you educate the public on any of this stuff? Because even from my perspective in law enforcement, where we're not necessarily dealing yeah. with national security issues day to day, but you kind of get like little hints of it here and there. Or maybe you hear things in certain conversations, but I mean, we're not, we're not like super far on the outside of that world. Yeah. But, boy, when you try to talk to people about it, even, uh, even police, I know it's, it's like you're speaking another language and they do they care? Well, maybe they care, but, I think they only care about as much yeah. as the general public. So how do you educate the public and also get them, I want to say, uh maybe motivated is the word, uh to to do something about it with their votes or lobbying right. or whatever it might be. But how do you how do you explain all this to people because it's boy, well, yeah, it feels like we're we're way way behind.
1: It is it, it's it's a good question and it's One of my former directors, Ward Elcock, he made these comments in a media interview. This was back, I think, in the winter or spring. He said, look, he said, politicians are very smart people. They they will make the issues, the issues they believe their constituents want to talk about and are concerned about. So if Canadians aren't concerned about national security, then why are the politicians, they're not going to be concerned about national security. I think they become concerned about mm. national security because what we've seen with this China gate business is that members of parliament and at a provincial and municipal level politicians have been targeted by foreign states, and I think that's, that's what's different this yeah. year in the past year than ever before is and this sounds cynical, but yeah it's okay if it's the Chinese Canadian community and police stations and all that, okay, yeah, if it's a Sikh community and India's interfering and. There's a tolerance there. But now we're seeing that they're actually targeting politicians, that they may actually be interfering in the writings. They may actually have tried to change the way of elections going. Now we've got their attention because that's their business.
0: Yeah, but even the diasporas, right? You've got all these people over here that are kind of have people making threats to them or their families back home. And it's like, well, there, there's your voting group right there, right? They're the ones getting uh, attacked or affected or whatever it might be. So, I, yeah, it's, it's just surprising. It's what a beast of an issue to try and, you know, tackle.
1: It is. And the media, I mean, there's only so many. I've done media interviews. I, somebody reached out to me in November, and that's how it started. Um, and I'm helpful Try to be helpful in explaining to them, because a lot of them don't understand it. And there's not as lot the media community in Canada isn't as big as people think. Not a lot of journals, not a lot of reporters. You get some of them, you know, you get Sam Cooper, you got some others that have been on the file for a while, but you know, they've been learning and they've been acquiring it. But it's it's a matter of um they they've got so many issues to deal with, you know. Like I think it was the day after the prime minister's announcement, there's An election in manitoba a new premier there's this and then there's gaza and israel and just that little moment there of a a soundbite for 30 seconds uh you know i had one reporter talk to me about a shooting in winnipeg Uh, it was a person of Sikh background and um you know we we had a good long chat and then you know she had about she did a good clip on it but it was trying to fit that into what CTV news is covering that whole evening. It's just like, it's a little, little bit like that. And so, yeah, Canadians, <laughs> Canadians, uh, uh, they're, they're, they're going to react to what, <clears throat> excuse me, what they see in the media and, uh, and, and form their own judgments. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think, I think part of it is because we're lucky we're a country that hasn't been invaded and i still say we haven't been under siege of the national security issues some other countries have and so that allows canadians to to think everything's wonderful and with foreign interference i'll be frank it's very gray and and you have to study it and look at it closely to realize the threat so for some canadians it's probably like well i don't know what yeah. this is all about you know trudeau Foundation, who cares
0: <laughs> yeah and and i get from the Political side. Sometimes they'll say, you know, uh, I don't want to just go out and say China's, you know, subverting all these processes we have, and they're doing all this influence because they're scared that it's going to make people like, resort to hate crimes and and attack yes. people in the Chinese community. But I think it, that just comes down to a lot of the messaging. If there's people who are willing to do that, they already got those thoughts. Maybe it. Makes them feel like they can go out and do that, but I don't think we're we're going to convert all of a sudden the the populace into a bunch of people who hate a certain group or another. No, um, I think it comes down to a lot of the messaging around that, and I think there's got to be a way that we can educate people safely, but also mm-hmm. get some of the information out there. And that is one of the things I see in law enforcement, but I imagine it's the same in in your world where. The the organizations are afraid or reluctant, I'll say, yeah. to share information, and like I think we can put a lot more out there and do it safely. Yeah. So there, there's there's got to be some kind of middle ground.
1: There, there can be, and and you look at I I think there's more CISA can say there's more CSE can say, coming from an organization 31 years where you know we didn't say anything. You see recently the five eyes the human partners or mostly human partners in the States, including uh, director Visional, were there and they were actually quite, I felt they said quite a lot in terms of not just China and Russia, but in terms of protecting IP and universities and private sector. And so those things are good because it's an effort to, you're hearing it from government. They're saying, okay, here's the threat. We're not going to get into the details. That'll never happen. Yeah. But we'll tell you that because when, when government doesn't say anything but puts out some unclassified brochure every now and then, it's easy for Canadians to then say, well, maybe they're not being straight with us, and maybe the threat is worse. I'm a big believer that security intelligence agencies should say more. Mm-hmm. I think they can disclose more. It's not going to be the end of the world. It still protect sources. And government writ large should more. And stands as cyber in terms of how private sector is being targeted by foreign state actors in the cyber world let's give private industry a little support here yes little help yeah uh instead of just keeping it all all inside maybe deal with them just unilaterally you don't have to tell everybody but i think i think government does need to just disseminate a bit more than they have
0: yeah and i think you had a good point there with um Working with some of the partners. So look at private industry. What can they do for us? What can we do for them? Yeah. They've got different resources. They also don't have to play by certain rules that we do. No. so they can operate in different realms. You look at journalists. There's a lot of journalists putting stuff out that maybe they, they can take on certain type of risks that uh, intelligence or a police agency can't. Yeah. There's just a lot of different avenues to go down. Um, we're coming up. We're pretty much right on time. I'll make sure I get you onto your next thing. Um, okay. I just want to give you a second to say uh, any current projects you got on the go, or um, any other. You know, I guess you're teaching, and then where people can find you, follow your work.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 out there. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Maybe maybe too much, <laughs> but um, we got a great program. You Ottawa director of the national security there, and what we're really doing is we're expanding the parameters of what people see as national security, that it's not just terrorism and espionage. There's issues mm-hmm. talk about Arctic. We can talk about various things and, and it's all about literacy is we're we are trying to raise that literacy level in Canadians, at least appreciate demystify it a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not all um, super secret and, um, uh, and, and have more participation, have, have people, uh, talk about it. And so we try through professional development and teaching. Um, I think it works well. We have some morning briefs. We've had, had a couple more scheduled. We're going to have some online. And it's just to have Canadians talk about it. Yeah. Because make uh, your point, what's the impact of this? What's the five eyes, the brand? It's ultimately what it matters to Canadians. And it's what's the messaging for Canadians. We don't, we don't worry too much about what the rest of the world thinks. But I'm concerned about what Canadians think and
0: know, well, and even uh, on that, uh, I think it's very important that people just yeah ask the questions and and have a discussion about it. Don't have no. to shout and scream, <laughs> but um because we get not get nowhere and get nothing done, but yeah, even if you don't end up working in this realm, yeah, just don't be afraid to ask questions and learn because it is important and At some point, some way, it could have an effect on you. So good to know. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll post some links uh, to your social media. But uh, yeah, just hang on the line for two seconds. I'll say bye offline. But thank you for coming on uh, the show today.
1: Oh, thank you, Nathan. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.